Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. Conversion isn't my job, that's God's job. My job is to live faithfully. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. This is the show where Christians in the public eye talk about their life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine, the UK's leading Christian publication. Today on the show, I'm speaking with a South African Episcopal priest, author and activist, Reverend Canon Mpo Tutu Van Firth. She's the daughter of the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the founding director of the Legacy Foundation bearing his name. Mpo, welcome to the show. Thank you. You grew up in apartheid South Africa. Can you tell me a bit about what you remember of that brutal system of racial segregation? Well, I I grew up both in England and in South Africa. Um, And it's really hard to describe the apartheid system and living under apartheid. It was so all-pervasive and... Um, seemed so much a fact of life for our lives. Um, we lived in um, very segregated communities. So um, the Black population, which is the majority of the South African population, lived in what were called um, townships um, that were really bedroom communities to service the needs of white South Africa. Um, The housing stock was incredibly um, poor. Um, The infrastructure almost non-existent. And, um, and, uh, you know, as compared to the um, really rather lavish homes of even the the poorest of, of white South Africans. And the expectation was that for white South Africans, life um, would be um, good, uh, that that, um, it was a society that really was a police state. Um, The, you know, in the in the black townships, you never saw any white people unless they were police um, or military personnel. There was never, you know, uh, white visitors to the township just coming to visit. That just it, it just didn't happen. Um, and so the the um, the depth of the segregation and the enforcement of the segregation was really um, severe, and um, was deliberate government policy. So most white South Africans 
um, although they would have Black people in their homes as servants, um, had no idea of what life was in the townships. And can you describe a bit of what that life was for you and your family? What did that look like when you, because it must have been so strange for you going from living in England to living in South Africa and having that, those, that kind of dual identity, that dual experience. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, um, so we first moved back to South Africa when I was maybe three years old. Um, my grandparents, my father was, my grandfather was the principal of a school in Munsieville where my father had grown up um, and, uh, or had been. And they lived in a uh, five room house, um, literally five rooms. There were two bedrooms uh, kitchen, come dining room, come sitting room, come living room, come everything else, uh, come spare room and guest room and whatever. And then a toilet, come bathroom. And they were fortunate because they had indoor plumbing, um, cold running water for the bathtub and for the, and, and the flush toilet. Um, but that wasn't always so. And my my grand my my maternal grandmother lived in a one room um, house where they uh, actually shared communal toilet, um, which was a you know with the bucket system toilet. So uh, once a week there would be a truck that came through to remove the. Um, the waste, the, the, the buckets of, of waste from these communal toilets. Um, and, um, and then, you know, schools were overcrowded. Uh, a, a classroom would have 50 to 100 students in a single classroom. So you can imagine that, that the um, emphasis in the classroom was on managing pupils rather than really imparting an education. Um, I was really fortunate um, because the, the years of our living in England coincided with my early education and, and primary school and then high school, I, I went to high school at Waterford in Swaziland, which was an, an, uh, uh, an international school that was built by um, people who really believed that apartheid was um, insane and that a uh, sane system was one in which um, children from every racial group and from every walk of life would learn together. And so that was that that was my experience, which is very different from the experience of, of South African children. And, and one of the reasons for that was because my parents had been teachers before the Bantu education system was was um, was instituted and, and had 
promised themselves that um, when they had children, their children would not be educated under Bantu education. And my my parents had both left teaching once the Bantu education system was was um, in, was was instituted. Can you just explain what that system was for for listeners who so basically Bantu education um, was a system of education that's that said um, or, or as Hendrik Fulwood the the instigator of that system said uh, that there was no point in educating black children for anything more than servanthood, that their role in life was going to be to provide services for white people. Um, and so the, the system of education was inferior. The expenditure on education for each Black child was one-twelfth of the expenditure on education for every white child. So the government expenditure on, yeah. Um, so it was it was separate and unequal by deliberate government policy. In what ways do you think you've been shaped by some of those experiences and both? I think, you know, the part of the the shaping for me was um, the very clear sense um, that, that, um that there is no that that race is not a, a determining factor for anything um it it doesn't determine skill talent ability it doesn't um it it makes yeah it, it's an irrelevancy actually um and I think, you know, the um, that sense of resisting racism is something that has been deeply instilled in me. Um, and not just the obvious systemic racism of an apartheid system, um, but the systemic racism that exists um, you know, in 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 every country, um, where where you know people make assumptions that are based on race, um, but have the power to make those assumptions have an impact, um, and so um, you know the that that racism is insidious. Um, often because it is unconscious and in, and so invisible, um, and the 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 task of making it visible, making it clear, this is what is happening here, um, is is one that um, is is essential to me, is crucial to me. Um, I mean, I you know I think you know of of living as I do now in the in the Netherlands, um, where uh, the the um, 
the border police here um, won a case in the Dutch courts that said that they are able to, that it is um, that racial profiling essentially um, is permissible um, under Dutch law. And the notion, I mean, the, you know, the, the absolute, the, the, the basic um, definition of racism is uh, prejudice plus power. Um, and so to be able to say, well, I make the judgment on the basis of your race that you are uh, potentially a threat to the society and so I can hinder your movements um, is literally the definition of racism. Um, and yet it's something that you know, it's just kind of blithely swallowed and we, you know, and, and on we go. Um, I mean, I, I I went through passport control at Tripo with my wife and um, she walked through um, and I, you know, going through those scanner machines and, and I was stopped. And when I turned around to look, it was, every person of color was stopped for a, a second um, examination of their materials, which, you know, which seems like a small thing, um, but is basically instilling in people of color that just by virtue of your color, there is something wrong with you, that, that you're, you know, uh, and that is, um, insidious and you know sort of meant that 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 what it does with your mind as you you know that you're kind of you're walking around with this sense of okay well what is what is wrong with me when I have done absolutely nothing wrong um but it is also blasphemous um, it is uh, the the blasphemy of saying that without um, doing anything, you're immediately judged um, to be wrong in your being. Um, wrong, you know, you're you're essentially wrong, um, as opposed to the promise that God gives us that we are essentially good and right. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we, like you say, we don't have these formal systems anymore, apartheid, you know, Jim Crow, those kinds of mm -hmm. historic systems. But yet there is still so much racism, systemic racism, police brutality, entrenched mm -hmm. inequalities, you know, where in, in most countries. How do you think Christians should be using our voices uh, in, in that space to bring about change? Well, I, I think we as Christians... Um, so very often are willing to turn a blind eye, to be quiet, to not take up the cause, well, it doesn't affect me. Um, or um, it does affect me and I'm afraid to say anything about it. Um, neither of which are, are Christian responses. 
um, the, the Christian response is always, if it affects my sister or my brother, and we are all sisters and brothers, if it affects my sister or my brother, then it affects me. Um, and that, that, um, that, as Paul says, perfect love casts out fear, that when we are engaged in loving action, we engage in loving action because it is loving action. Um, and not, uh, and that we we pay no regard to our fears. Um, you know, uh, the 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 bumper sticker citation is that courage is fear that has said its prayers. Um, so if we are praying, then we have um, we have all of the courage that we need. Well, talking about courage, that brings me nicely to speaking about your the influence of your late father, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Can you tell me a bit about how he, he his life impacted you and your faith? Um, that's a good question, and I don't know. Um, he was, you know, he was my father, and so much uh, a part of my life. Um, and, you know, um, I'm sure it has impacted me in ways that are visible and in ways that are invisible, um, that he had a, uh, a pattern of life that was very much bounded in and by prayer, um, that, that his, his, um, his his action was always preceded and um, and ended with prayer, um, preceded by and ended with prayer. Uh, my, he was an, he was also an English teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I sometimes hear his voice. <laughs> um, but also that he was a person of incredible love and compassion. And, um, and so it is, it, it's, it is that really remarkable combination of courage and compassion so that um, he he wasn't a person who shouted a lot or um when he was angry he was um clear um and also able to be compassionate in that same breath um and so, um, yeah, I, I, I think, I hope um, that, that I have learned that clarity from him. Um, and I hope that I have also learned the, um, a deep sense of fairness um that and and fairness not only being taking up the cause of the underdog um 
but also being um, a willingness to see the side of the enemy, to see, you know, what is it that got you here? And how is it that I can invite you um, to be on the side of good and right um, rather than um, harangue you um, or demonize you? Those are really important things in our world today, aren't they? And like you said, your father was very good at that. I think we, we could do with a bit more of that sort of attitude. Yes, we could. Um, is there anything more you would like to say about your father in terms of what he was like as a dad? Because obviously we know him as the public figure um, and all the amazing work that he did in South Africa to bring about the end of apartheid. But what was he like as a, just as your dad, you know, behind closed doors? Yeah, um, my dad is very much a what you see is what you get. So the person you saw as a public figure was very much the person um behind closed doors. I mean, the the, um, posi- the stances that he took the, um, were also part of our dinner table conversation. Um, his, his observations and concerns were, you know, this was not just a conversation that he'd have for public consumption, but it was also um, the experience that we had of him at home. Um, he was very loving, very um, um, and, and very, very observant. Like he noticed things and he's, you know, quick with a compliment, uh, you know, like, um, he, uh, he was the he was definitely the person who would uh notice if you you know just had your hair done or if you had a new lipstick or you know changed the frame of your glasses or um and you know that he was he was that person and he um was also just incredibly admiring of my mom I mean you know to to their yeah to his last days he you know that this was the person who would be hand in hand with with my mother into their 90s and um and you know just yeah uh, yeah that's lovely yeah that's so lovely when you see that it is I, I remember um, we had gone uh, to to uh, Disney um, in in California with um, with some friends and with with our kids, young at that time, really young kids. Um, and you know, uh, he had gone with my mom on one of the big. Um, rides and then we had gone on you know kind of the kiddie rides with the kids <laughs> and he came off the kiddie rides and he was like oh, that's so boring 
he already grabbed my mom's hand and said, come on, let's go try the roller coaster again. <laughs> that certainly seemed like the kind of person that was full of fun and joy. I think joy is the yeah. word that, that you think of when you think of um, Archbishop Tutu. Yes. And Pope, when you were 31, apartheid was ended in South Africa. That must have been quite an incredible moment. Do you Do you remember that time? Yes. I mean, I remember... Yeah, I remember um, Madiba's release and um, the end of the system of apartheid. Absolutely, yes. It was both a joyful and a tense time because you'll remember that um, they, you know, prior to the elections, there was um, a great deal of violence. The uh, Chris Hani was killed in that time in the run-up to the elections. There was um, uh, some battle in the in the townships as the violence as um, the IFP and the ANC really were engaged in pre-election battles. And then also that there were Afrikaner nationalists had also um, been engaging in in violence and threats of violence. And so it was both a time of hope and turmoil. Um, But when when the election was finally held and Mandela won the election, um, I mean, people queued up for days to, to vote and then um, the outcome of the election was a real source of great joy. And I, you know, I remember watching the inauguration on, on, um, on television and, and the, I think for most South Africans and certainly Black South Africans, um, you know, the transformation was hugely emotional. It's interesting that racial justice movements have in the past been led by Christians. So people like your dad in South Africa, Martin Luther King, William Wilberforce. It makes you wonder why people of faith largely seem to be missing from things like Black Lives Matter today. Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm not 100% sure that I would agree that people of faith are missing from those. It may just be that they're not um, prominent Christian leaders in, in place of being leaders in Black Lives Matter. Um, in, in the United States, I think still, um, most Black people would still identify as, as being um, Christian. Um, and, you know, and if not Christian, then certainly people of faith. Faith is, uh, uh, they, you know, and, and, but I think they may not stand on the platform of faith um, to, to articulate their stance. Um, or to articulate that need. I think that in in that mix, you will always find um, people of faith voicing voicing that. Um, I think also, I, I don't know what the Black Lives Matter um, 
movement looks like in the UK. Um, but I, I do think also that um, the, the white Christian evangelical movement in the US um, has, has uh, yeah, been quite opposed to that Black Lives Matter movement. And so I think that that might also have something to do with the, the appearance that, that, that it's not a Christian-led movement because a lot of the, um, the, the publicity power and the political power sits in the white Christian evangelical community rather than sitting in the black community. Holier than thou. Radical. Delusional. Ignorant. Perfect. It's time to challenge stereotypes about Christians, and Premier Christianity is leading the way. Transform your perceptions, broaden your horizons, open your mind to wide-ranging views. Read interviews with politicians, theologians, and TV presenters. Discover the breadth of the Christian spectrum. Be provoked, react, inspired, and informed. Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. Premier Christianity magazine. The bigger picture. On the profile, we like to ask all of our guests about their journey to faith. You obviously grew up in a Christian household, but when did you start following Jesus for yourself and Paul? Oh, I don't know. Um, I... Uh, yeah, I I think that that um, that faith was in the water I drank and the air I breathed, and you know where <laughs> uh, where 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 would I go? Um, Christ has the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So why would I be leaving to go somewhere else? What would I be looking for elsewhere when, when I had found the, the source of life? So you didn't have a sort of conversion moment per se where you sort of turned away from your kind of former life and decided, yeah, I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus. It wasn't that sort of a moment for you. No, nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I, um, it has, yeah, it's, it's been a constant walk with God. Um, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe there are small surrenders along the way, but it's, um, but it's, it is a, in a sense, it's a relationship like every relationship, um, that, that sometimes you're all in both hands, both feet and, and, you know, um, all of your fingernails and sometimes you're in ish, um, but it's, it is a relationship that is, yeah, for me, foundational. <clears throat> and your road to ordination, when did you realise that you were being called to the priesthood? Um, yeah, so I, I 
I talk about my road to ordination as being something of a, a backwards road of um, not resistance, but just um, maybe ignoring the call um, that, you know, so putting a lot of energy in other places um, because I wasn't willing to look at the um, the energy of call that 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 was um, on my life, um, and I think what what really finally happened for me was um, in my early thirties. Um, I was running a program and at um, an Episcopal Church in Worcester, Massachusetts, and really enjoying the work that I was doing, um, but really feeling that, you know, I, I am really good at running programs. I'm really good at creating structures that will stand the test of time. Um, but programs are, even the most wonderful programs are programs. They're not life-giving, they're programs. That's, you know, they're there to do the thing that they're there to do. They're not there to, um, uh, to transfigure your experiences and to and and it was that that it was like you know I can um I can I can give you the um the recipe book um but only God can infuse your cooking with soul and, um and it and that was the the time when it was that really what made the most sense to me was was bringing people into that life in Christ. Your role as a member of the clergy in South Africa came to, to quite an abrupt end, didn't it, when you married your wife? Can you tell me a bit about that time? How did you feel returning your license? Um, incredibly, yeah, grief-stricken, actually. I at, at the time I was I was still the executive director of the Legacy Foundation. Um, I'm canonically resident in in Washington, and so um, the the and my primary ministry at the time was as executive director of the Legacy Foundation, and so it was um, really returning a license for a thing that wasn't the primary source of my income it you know and it and it didn't it wasn't the thing that validated my priesthood um but it was the um my home church the church of my youth and and so it felt like being um being thrown out of home, um, of being, um, yeah, in a sense, abandoned by the church. 
um, and incredibly painful, um, more painful than I imagined it would be because it it wasn't a, a piece of paper that was essential for any part of my life for you know kind of my or my my livelihood shall we say um but it was yeah it wasn't essential for my livelihood but it was for my life you said in the past that falling in love with Marceline was as much of a surprise to you as to anyone else what did you mm -hmm. mean by this oh um because people ask oh you know are you lesbian are you bisexual um you know where do you fit on that spectrum and I would have told you if you had asked me um even the year before uh you know are you attracted to women yeah I like women they're nice um but I'm heterosexual and that is who and what I am um and yeah what I what I realized is that um yeah I I love her because she is her and in a sense I think, um, you know, it was the, the, the thing was, you know, if I had fallen in love with a Chinese man or a Russian man or, a, or an Indian man, or um, nobody would have blinked. Um, but I fell in love with a woman and then it's like, okay, well, how, you know, what do you do with this? I fell in love with a person. Um, and you know all all that comes with that being a person did it change your view of sexuality in the sense of kind of understanding your own sexuality you you know you talk about those questions about bisexuality being a lesbian you know those things of attraction towards the same sex did, did that must have been quite a moment. I, I, I can't really imagine it almost. Because I, I, do, I do understand what you're saying about falling in love and seeing the person. Um, but as someone who's lived as a, you know, mm -hmm. heterosexual and been married um, mm -hmm. to a man, that, that really must have been quite a shock for you. Did, did, it, did it kind of almost blow apart your categories of people and your understanding of what sexuality is and the spectrum? And Yeah, I think that maybe um the best description is is just is for me it was more a recognition that um sexuality is is on a spectrum um that there are you know there are some people who would never look twice think twice it, it's just you know that that'll never happen and there are some people who you know, in terms of you know, that that they will always only ever have a heterosexual partner, and that is, you know, just how it is for them. And there are some people who will only ever have a partner of the same sex, um, and can only can only ever be in in that kind of a relationship. And then there's the rest of the rest of us who are 
<laughs> he, um, who who love who who we love, um, gender notwithstanding or gender regardless. Marceline is a is a white Dutch atheist, as you know. <laughs> That's not news to you. Um, <laughs> you must have some really interesting conversations over dinner. Well, we do have some interesting conversations over dinner, um, but I think you know the the one thing that um, that makes the relationship possible is being able to be respectful of where each stands. Um, so she's a white Dutch atheist who has a spiritual life um, and who. Um, in in the early years of our relationship when we were kind of back and forth between countries and i was traveling quite a bit with my dad my dad would we would have a my dad would have a daily eucharist um regardless of where he was and so sometimes it was a daily eucharist in the hotel room um and and marceline would come along and be present um, she wouldn't join any of the the singing or the prayers um, vocally, but she um, would come and it was for her a time of quiet meditation at the beginning of the day, which is okay. Um, and you know I, I and I always think um, actually, conversion isn't my job, that's God's job. Um, my job is to live faithfully and, um, and, you know, living faithfully then allows, you know, allows the space for God's spirit to work. Have you found yourself challenged by some of her her views, or how has your faith ch faith changed as a result of of your relationship with Marceline? Would you say? No, I no, I haven't found myself challenged. I don't. I yeah. Um, I think. I mean, maybe the scheduling challenges of oh, you know. Why don't we, you know, can we skip church today and go do da da da? Yeah, no, we can't skip church today. <laughs> we can go after church, <laughs> um, but but um, you know, and and no, I don't want to do. Um, I'm not doing office work on a Sunday, so no, I'm not doing that. And yes, I know it's just this question, but no. <laughs> so yeah. So you you've been very clear in your mind. Um, uh, well, going back to what you said about your dad, you've had that clarity that you. Yeah, and 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 we're yeah we're um, we live together and work together on living and working together yeah but you said in the past that you think the church will one day and i'm, I'm quoting you here come around to see god's way regarding mm -hmm. gay relationships what mm -hmm. did you mean by this well i think that 
that that we um, were really challenged by um, the diversity that that God has placed in the world. Um, we're, we're challenged by racial diversity, we're challenged by gender diversity, and we're challenged by sexual diversity. Um, we would rather um, be laying down the law and, um, you know, uh, saying this, you know, this is permissible, that's not permissible, um, and making the world in the image of our own narrow minds. Um, and over and over again, God keeps blowing open the door. Um, the spirit keeps um, blasting through our prejudices um, and, and uh, throwing um, flowers in our path in every shade of the rainbow and shades beyond. Um, and the, the church will eventually catch up with God. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favour right now? It will take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it. Your new book, Forgiveness and Reparation, The Healing Journey, is a poetic exploration of the efficacy of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was set up in the 90s to remember the human rights abuses of apartheid and to bring some form of healing. What, in your view, were the successes and failures of that commission? Um, yeah, so... Yeah, both. And I think that, that the book speaks not only to the South African experience, but it, it speaks also to the experience around the world because it's a conversation um, about reparations that is alive, not only in South Africa, but um, everywhere that there are colonial powers and that would be everywhere. Um, but in terms of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I think the primary, um, well, the primary success of the commission was in that it gave South Africans a common history of apartheid. Um, the apartheid system was really good at um, division. And that, that was its point and purpose. And... Um, and 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 so the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, gave each group of South Africans, each divided group of South Africans, a common understanding of what life under apartheid actually had been like um, for all of us, um, because we were all hearing the story in the same room at the same time and hearing of people's experiences in the same room at the same time and not being able to say, no, that didn't happen. No, that, you know, because the, um, the research um, and that, that undergirding of the, of the commission was really strong. Um, it also 
gave um, those who had been victims of um, the most gross human rights violations a platform to, to tell their stories and to begin a process of healing. And the understanding as the commission was established was that it was truth on the way to reconciliation. So we got a lot of truth. Um, we even got a significant amount of forgiveness. Um, what we didn't get was reconciliation because reconciliation requires that both victim and perpetrator be equally invested in seeing an outcome that is fair for all. Um, and in the, the way that the commission was set up, the commission was, was set up in, um, so that those who were perpetrators would, if they made a full disclosure of, of their deeds, would be granted amnesty from prosecution. Um, the the victims the the um, the the acts that created the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, also asked that the commission advise um, what would be an appropriate reparation recompense for the the victims. And by the time that the commission handed in its final reports, the government had changed from that of uh, Madiba to that of Mbeki, and um, and and the the ANC leadership at that time was really angry because they too had been called to testify as perpetrators for their deeds, um, particularly in the, in, the, um, in the refugee camps. And, and so they um, ignored the recommendations of the commission in terms of reparations. And so victims received no reparations, neither from the government nor from the perpetrators. And so the opportunity to actually um, begin a, um, or to, yeah, to cement a healing process was lost. So based on what you're saying, I, I presume that, that South Af Black South Africans now are still massively disadvantaged then because of that. Absolutely. Absolutely, the, that economically South Africa looks very much the same as it did under apartheid, that, that um, the economic advantages still accrue mostly to the white population. Most wealth in South Africa still sits in white hands, even though there are um, black people and you know people of color who have uh, acquired um, wealth, but most wealth still sits in the hands of white South Africans. In your view, what what is the answer to that? Well, yeah, um, a real regime of reparations and a real 
um, engagement with a wealth tax on, on white South Africans. Um, and I think, you know, kind of the further you move away from the formal political apartheid, the harder it is to institute. Mm. Do you think the same could be said of, of North America with, with in terms of slavery? Do you think there should be something similar there? Oh, absolutely. North America, Great Britain, most of the Western world actually um, has reparations to pay, even even though for the most part, you know, I mean, it's 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 really easy for Europe to look at North America and say slavery over there. But the reason that the slavery was over there um, was that, you know, in, in much of Europe, um, enslavement wasn't permitted on the territory, but slave holdings and slave wealth um, has certainly built up the, the, the coffers of the colonial powers. And so I think it's, yeah, it's definitely to be reckoned with. You have a really truly sort of international life and you've, you're sort of quite a global citizen. I and mean, I was looking at your website and all the people that you've met and um, the places that you've been and the, the projects that you've been involved in. It's really quite impressive. Thank you. In your view, how can the church be a force for good in, uh, in the world in 2022? So I think that, um, that, that Christ left us with a, really simple mandate, um, love one another as I have loved you. Um, and, you know, if we take that mandate as our guide, um, uh, a love that really is self-giving, um, not, uh, you know, because, we tend to think of, you know, I, I get, I love, I get to tell you what to do. Um, where, where Christ is, I love, I show you by example, um, how to live a life of love, how to live a life that is self-giving. Um, you know that that um, love isn't a power grab. Um, love love is acting for others on behalf of others, um, and you know taking that stance, um, taking the stance of radical inclusiveness, taking the stance of standing up for the underdog, um, taking the stance of ensuring the dignity of all human beings, taking the stance of caring for our planet. Um, all, of, all of those things, um, if, if the church takes those on seriously, um yeah those those are transformative that yeah yeah 
You've got a really extensive CV that includes writing books, uh, creating artwork, founding organisations, campaigning, outreach. When you look back on your life, what are the projects or pieces of work that you're most proud of? That's really challenging. Um, I think um, maybe the places where I have got to where I've been able to sow seeds, create a base that is sturdy enough um, that, yeah, that God can give the increase, um, that, that um, you know, that, that after I am gone, um, the, the next person who comes along can come along and make something that I, that is better than I had imagined. Um, Can you think of a specific example of Well, the, the, the Legacy Foundation would be one. Um, the Discovery Program at All Saints would be another. Um, the the um, Rape Crisis Hotline in, in Grahamstown would be another. Um, that, you know, that, that there was a, a solid enough base, you know, um, solid not meaning huge, just meaning solid. And that, you know, there was something for someone to step on and say, okay, well, we can expand the base and grow the thing in this way, or we can make it more beautiful in that way, or... Um, but that there's, yeah, that's, that I think would be what I'm, what I'm proud of as projects. Finally, um, your father sadly died last year. What do you see as his legacy? <laughs> um, oh, we are all of the the people who he touched and loved and inspired we're his legacy all of the people who who take up for each other in ways that are unselfish yeah we're his legacy you've been listening to the profile in association with premier christianity magazine